Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Melissa K. Mary, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Louisville, to discuss her new book, Warped Narratives, Distortion in the Framing of Gun Policy, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Your book argues that gun policy debates in the U.S. are warped because policy groups systematically distort the problem of gun violence by focusing on atypical characters and settings. Before we explore the argument and the methodology, I want to just ask you a little bit about how this project connects to your previous work, you know, your, your 2014 book, Framing Environmental Disaster, interrogated the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and, and it has a policy angle, and, and it is also talking about, about framing. Um, how did you come to write this book on gun policy, and what are the connections and maybe some of the differences in the two books? Okay. Um, yeah. So I consider myself a policy scholar. Uh, I'm interested in the policy process generally. So I have looked at different issues uh, over time. So uh, in earlier research, I looked at environmental policy. um, And then in this book, I focus on gun policy. And throughout my research, sort of one common theme is uh, the role of language and framing. So I've always seen framing or how we talk about issues as sort of fundamental to how the policy process plays out. Um, And I've always been interested in interest groups and how they use framing uh, to try to influence the policy process. So there's some continuity from the previous work in environmental policy to this project. Um, I'm also interested in focusing events. So uh, with my previous book, I look at the Deepwater Horizon oil spill of 2010 to examine how interest groups framed that uh, that event. 
uh, given that there are different ways of interpreting it? Uh, and how do they attribute blame for that disaster? Um, and then, so, you know, mass shootings constitute a very different type of focusing event, one that draws our attention to the problem of gun violence. So after I wrapped up the, the project on environmental policy, I, I really wanted to turn my attention to um, this area to explore how this policy issue is framed. Um, and uh, my argument is a little bit different um, from the previous book in that I focused in that book on blame attribution. In this, I'm more interested in sort of the general contours of the policy debate um, because I, I notice, I observe that it's, it seems that the the way the ways that we talk about gun violence um, don't do the entire problem justice, and that we're really oftentimes just focusing on one small facet of the problem. Um, and that's how I got to this concept of the the policy debate being worked. Uh, at the very start of the book, you talk about the challenges of writing on guns, uh, the challenge of being asked by family or friends. So where do you stand on guns? And as somebody who's written on the Second Amendment and been asked some of these questions and read a lot of prefaces in which scholars feel the need to either confess that they are pro-gun, anti-gun, they've fired a gun, they started the process and they uh, didn't believe in guns and they ended their research and they did. I, I wonder what you think in comparison to working on environmental policy about writing about guns and the reaction that you get both from people in your personal and in your scholarly life? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, I uh, I live in southern Indiana, so right outside Louisville, Kentucky, and um, a lot of people own guns, and I sort of live out in the country, and it's very common uh, to hear the sound of gunfire because people, you know, they just shoot their guns. Um, and, uh, so when people, you know, uh, acquaintances ask me about my research and what I do, um, it sort of it raises red, you know, it's, it seems to raise red flags. They, they are wondering what my, you know, the, the, the initial instinct is, well, what's your view on gun, uh, gun control? Um, and I sort of recognize that they are potentially coming from a different place than, than I am coming from. Um, so it's, it's just sort of a very touchy subject and I'm always aware of that probably more so in talking to non-academics. Um, academics uh, tend to sort of recognize that the, the way that I approach the subject matter. Um, I, I acknowledge that I have my own personal biases, but I'm really sort of interested in examining the issue from that sort of academic perspective, looking at sort of both sides of the issue, so to speak, and trying to come up with some generalizable knowledge that we can use to understand the policy process a little bit better. Um, academics get that. Uh, people who, who aren't in academia maybe don't quite get that so much. And so their first instinct is to just sort of dive into the issue. And I'm always sort of hesitant to do that. Well, and I'd say you're being just a tiny bit modest because many academics, particularly in history, have actually gotten themselves in an enormous amount of trouble given that their their research was, it appears, 
too attached to a particular position such that it skewed their um, judgment. I'll just put it um, vaguely there. And and this book, I, I think actually very much like um, uh, The Positive Second Amendment by uh, Joseph Blocker and Daryl Miller, Kristen Goss's books as well, are really trying to to, to approach guns not from this kind of polemical place, but from a place of scholarship. And I, and I really think this book succeeds, and that's, that's a hard thing to do. Um, you start, though, with a puzzle, which I, I think is a good way for us to get into the, the argument and the methodology, which is that you say that you know, gun violence in the United States has had enormous costs. Uh, you know, roughly 35,000 people are killed by guns each year. And you point out that the government has been legislating on this for quite some time, uh, most seriously since the Gun Control Act of 1968, which expanded licensing and, and shut down access, uh, uh, prohibited sales to, to certain categories of citizens. But as you point out, even with the legislation, there hasn't been a decrease in gun deaths. And you start with this problem of, well, if gun violence is such a problem, why don't we see more effective solutions? And I thought maybe we'd start with that question uh, as to as to why these narratives matter so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there really hasn't been any major uh, federal gun legislation since the mid-1990s. Um, and we have this, you know, this incredible problem with 35,000 gun deaths every year and the number of gun injuries every year is at least twice that. So uh, you know, why haven't we made a, a, a more serious dent in the problem of gun violence? Uh, and there are some, there's some usual explanations for this. Uh, one is the power of the National Rifle Association, uh, which has about 5 million members, and it has been incredibly politically powerful in stopping uh, any new gun regulations. Um, and then another facet of this debate is the degree of political polarization. So policy positions on guns are very uh, entrenched and polarized between Democrats and Republicans, and this is only increasing. Uh, So the prospects for uh, any kind of legislative compromise on guns are very, very slim to none. Uh, So those are some of the usual explanations, uh, and I don't dispute those factors. In fact, I think those are very important. However, I'm also uh, drawing attention to another, what I call more general dysfunction of the policy debate. And that is how it's sort of the way we talk about the debate, the way we frame it. Um, So I argue that the policy debate is distorted or warped, meaning that uh, the ways that we talk about the issue don't accurately reflect the nature of the problem. And uh, there are many political actors who contribute to this. And it's a a process that happens over time through the accumulated framing choices of elected officials and commentators and members of the media and interest groups. Um, And of course, I focus on, on interest groups specifically. 
Um, and I argue that both gun control and gun rights organizations are doing this um, in, in that they are emphasizing atypical or unusual characters or settings in their, uh, their policy narratives. Um, so in particular, gun control groups t typically uh, highlight white victims, child victims, and they disproportionately uh, emphasize mass shootings uh, in suburban locations. Uh, gun rights organizations, they primarily focus on self-defense situations or shootings like home invasions or robberies uh, in which uh, sort of law-abiding citizens are, are targeted. Uh, and this is problematic um, because uh, both types of organizations rarely mention the role of race in gun violence, even though gun violence disproportionately affects racial minorities. And both types of organizations rarely mention the leading cause of gun fatalities, uh, which is suicide. So about 60% of gun deaths are from suicide. And that's just not reflected um, in the rhetoric of gun policy organizations. So this is a problem because it leads to widespread misperceptions of the, the, the nature of the issue. And that can undermine any, um, any effort to successfully address the root cause of the problem. And, and, and in the book, you do such a wonderful job of, um, of showing the nuances of both sides and how, in fact, they both do this. I think people are quite familiar with the idea that the NRA is a powerful interest group and that it has a certain language of citizen protectors. There's been a lot of work done on that, but you do a really good job of showing how how both sides are are manipulating the narrative in order to uh, highlight one or another aspect. And when you talk about warping and the consequences, you're very careful to separate policy and and the political uh, consequences, and then bring them back together. So could we start with the policy consequences of warping and then move to the political? Right, absolutely. So uh, in terms of policymaking, uh, the way we talk about and understand a problem is going to have consequences for the solutions that are considered and ultimately adopted. Uh, so if we're just focusing on one small facet of the problem, um, then that might be reflected in the solution. Uh, for example, so uh, in the wake of, there was a shooting in 2011 in Tucson in which uh, Representative uh, Gabby Giffords was severely injured. Um, and the perpetrator in that shooting used a, a semi-automatic weapon and it had a 33-round magazine. So after that shooting, people started talking about banning uh, large capacity magazines. Uh, let's say, so with a focus on a, a proposal like that, that might have ha had an effect in that particular instance in that particular shooting. Uh, but does it really address the root cause of the problem? Um, it certainly is not going to have an impact on uh on the problem of suicide. So you're just looking, uh, it, it could lead policymakers to focus on just one small aspect of the problem, but not really tackle uh, the root of the problem. 
Um, so that that can be a, a, a problematic in terms of figuring out what is the, the the most effective solution to really make a dent in um, these massive numbers in terms of uh, deaths and, and injuries that we have in the United States. Uh, and what about the um, the political? What how how do you see the political consequences um, and and warping? Right. Uh, so I argue that uh, the political consequence, there are several different negative political consequences uh, of warping for interest groups. So it makes it hard for them to build diverse and broad-based coalitions. Uh, when gun control groups focus on mass shootings or gun rights groups focus on self-defense shootings, uh, and they're prominently focusing on white victims, that um, could definitely alienate uh, African Americans who feel that their own suffering is being ignored. It could alienate uh, people who are concerned about other causes of gun violence, like uh, like suicide. Uh, in addition, uh, when groups are speaking in such different terms about the issue, um, this reduce the reduces the prospects that they'll be able to compromise. Um, they're sort of, in other words, they're talking past each other. They're speaking two different languages. Uh, and so the, the possibility of them coming to a common understanding is diminished. Uh, I also argue this can fundamentally uh, uh, fuel distrust between opposing sides. Uh, and um, this comes about uh, in part when there is a mismatch between the framing of the problem and the solution being advocated. So, for example, uh, if a gun control group uses uh, a mass shooting as an opportunity to advocate for something like expanded background checks on gun sales, uh, let's say the perpetrator actually passed a, a background check, and so in that instance it wouldn't have prevented the person from uh, acquiring weapons. Um, this could lead uh, people to question the group's motives and ask whether they have some sort of hidden agenda. Uh, and this is especially problematic for gun control groups. Um, for a long time, gun rights organizations have argued um, that gun control advocates won't stop until basically every gun in America is confiscated. So there's already sort of this baseline level of distrust. Uh, directed at gun control groups. Um, and gun control groups are especially susceptible to the criticism um, that, uh, that focuses on this something called a futility argument. Uh, the futility argument is that gun laws just don't work because criminals don't obey the law. Uh, and so when gun control groups focus on mass shootings, um, and they advocate for these narrow incremental solutions, they sort of open up, uh, they open themselves up to this criticism um, that they are advocating for solutions that just, that are futile and that they just won't work. Um, so with the distrust as high as it is in this incredibly polemical debate, does that mean that narratives have even more uh, 
more meaning? Is that part of what makes them so hotly contested and extreme? Um, it, yeah, I mean, at, at this moment, in, um, in the past several years, I think this the policy debate has gotten even more emotionally heated. Um, and that's part of what makes narratives so powerful. Narratives transport us. They evoke emotional responses, fear, anger. Um, and that's why they are influential or can be influential, right? So interest groups are trying to harness the emotional power of narrative to shape public opinion to their advantage. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the empirical tools that you use, because you know, lots of, of, of gun scholars quote people, uh, um, sometimes in context, sometimes out of context. It, it's often uh, some work is done, I'm thinking about Jennifer Carlson's work as more of an ethnography. You bring something very different to this from political science. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you chose the groups to study and which ones are looked at here in, in this book, and also how you decided to define communication, both both what kinds of communication and, and when that communication took place. Mm-hmm. Right. So to sort of support the argument, I have to demonstrate that the policy debate is warped. And therefore, I have to look at the communications of interest groups. Uh, And so I chose 15 organizations to study, nine gun control groups and six gun rights organizations. Uh, And I wanted to focus on national organizations and capture all of the major players at the federal level. So on the gun control side, some of the uh, major groups are the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, uh, and Every Town for Gun Safety. Uh, and then there are some uh, there's some other organizations that are newer or more peripheral. So I wanted to get a sort of good diversity uh, so that uh, includes uh, the uh, the group called Gays Against Guns, uh, which formed in the aftermath of the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, and Cure Violence, which is an organization that focuses on the way uh, violence um, tr- it sort of travels in in a very similar way to uh, to an epidemic. Uh, in communities and really focuses on urban communities and stopping the spread of violence. So um, there's, I tried to capture both the major players and some of the newer, more peripheral peripheral groups that perhaps have a little bit of a different uh, approach. Um, on the gun right side, um, I, I only have six organizations and that reflects the um, just sort of the difference in the, the policy community. So the NRA is the biggest organization, and there are, there just isn't much room for other organizations, but there is some diversity. Um, so uh, there is a, a group called the Gun Owners of America, which is a little bit more extreme. It calls itself the No Compromise Gun Lobby, uh, the National Association for uh, Gun Rights, 
and the Second, Second Amendment Foundation, uh, Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, um, and Students for Conce uh, Concealed Carry, uh, or Campus Carry. And um, the, the diversity on the gun rights side is a little bit more just ideological diversity. So um, that, that was the goal, was to sort of capture uh, uh, the, the main players at the federal level and to look at sort of the intergroup dynamics and to examine the cohesion among groups on the same side of the issue. Um, and then in terms of the communications I'm looking at, I'm also trying to capture the full scope of their communications. So I selected uh, four different media in which groups communicate. So blog posts, emails, press releases, and Facebook posts. Uh, and I look at the period from 2000 to 2017 and just collected as many of these communications as I could from each of these organizations. Uh, so the total uh, number of communications in the study is, is nearly 67,000. Um, and that, that allows for a very powerful analysis and it allows for me to generalize about the overall um, state of framing within the both the gun control side and the gun rights side and a very full picture of how groups frame the issue. And then also I, I look at this long time period so I can sort of look over time at how the framing has shifted and does it change in response to certain events um, like uh, the, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, for instance. Um, so the, the, basically the, the objective was to get, uh, as full, uh, a picture of the state of framing in the gun control and gun rights movements as possible. Uh, we have some real quant jocks who listen to the podcast. And so can you just say a little bit about how you use this enormous data set to, to get the outcomes, what kinds of tools you were using to do the, the linguistic analysis. Right. So I use, uh, I, as, by necessity, I used automated computer content analysis to, uh, to analyze all of the nearly 67,000 communications. Um, and the way I used a program called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count, uh, and I like that program because it uh, it has sort of its own internal dictionaries, but it allows researchers to develop their own dictionaries. So, and by dictionary, I just mean a collection of key terms uh, and phrases that are associated with different concepts. So, I have a dictionary for uh, for different types of victims. So a dictionary that indicates when a communication references a victim's age and a dictionary that, uh, captures when a communication mentions a victim's race or a different uh, type, uh, a particular type of gun violence, like a mass shooting or an accidental shooting. So I uh, built these numerous dictionaries and then the computer did the hard work of identifying which communications contained these particular topics. Um, and that gives an overall picture for how these topics appear in the frequencies that they do over time. 
but that you know, loses some of the nuance. So to sort of supplement supplement the automated content analysis, I uh, I would do sort of a deep dive into examples um, and really dig into and figure out okay when groups are talking about uh, mental illness or terrorism in reference to the perpetrators of gun violence, what actually are they talking about? So I went Mm -hmm. back and I read through um, many of these blogs, emails, press releases, and Facebook posts just to get a sense, a picture of, okay, how how are these topics being uh, discussed? How, when race does come up, doesn't come up very often, but when it does come up, how our groups talking about it. So it's sort of a combination of this quantitative content analysis with the more qualitative contextual analysis of the of the topics and the ways that groups are using these topics. No, and I really appreciated the nuance with which you did that. I mean, if you look at what, uh, for example, somebody like Anton Scalia is doing in his analysis of past discussions of um, uh, rights and policy. This 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 idea of figuring out well, what do people mean when they say a particular word, and are they using it ironically? Are they using it uh, strategically? Uh, has the the meaning of the word changed? Are they changing the meaning of the words as they speak? And this is a really complex project that you you've undertaken, and I just love the combination of the qualitative and the quantitative, and I found it so much more convincing than so much of what I have read about about gun narratives because of that sophistication. So I I I, I love that part of the book. Thank okay. you so much for uh, for all of that. Now, besides the quantitative, you are also bringing three really powerful qualitative frameworks to this. Um, you use narrative policy. You use social construction of target populations and critical race theory. And those are not, uh, especially critical race theory, is not always uh, integrated into these other approaches. So I was wondering if you could um, let us know, uh, and and not everybody is obviously a policy analyst, um, scholar, what each one is and how you're how you're using them to help us better understand the distortion of the narratives. Sure. Um, so I draw on these three frameworks: uh, the narrative policy framework, the social construction of target populations, and critical race theory. Probably the one that I rely on the most is the narrative policy framework. Uh, one of the things that I uh, I really like about the narrative policy framework is that it identifies structural elements that are common across contexts. So there is a setting there uh, that includes a geographic location and a general context. There are characters, including heroes, villains, victims. Um, there's a plot that connects them, and there's usually also a moral or a solution. And interest groups can use different narrative strategies depending on their goals and their position in the policy debate. Um, one strategy that's very common is seeking to expand the, the scope of conflict, um, especially for groups that are or perceive themselves to be on the losing side of the issue. 
Um, they will use narratives in ways that bring in more sympathetic participants to the policy debate um, to sort of question uh, the status quo. Um, so, for instance, let's say there's a mass shooting in a suburban elementary school uh, in which white children are the predominant victims. Um, that narrative is likely to hit home with sort of white suburban moms. They are likely to say, this could happen to my child and I should be afraid of that. And so that's a narrative that is very personally relevant to the audience and can bring in more participants. Um, and then the opposite strategy is conflict containment. If you're happy with the status quo and you don't want to draw uh, attention to the issue, make it seem distant. Emphasize settings that are far away and victims that are socially dissimilar uh, and are victims that the audience you're appealing to would view as undeserving. So uh, gun rights groups, uh, for instance, who appeal to rural white gun owners might uh, pursue this strategy by suggesting that gun crime is concentrated in urban areas. Um, so there are different ways of putting narratives together to pursue these different strategies. So that's that's sort of the narrative policy framework. Um, the social construction of target populations focuses uh, on how elected officials design public policies to maximize their chances of winning re-election. Uh, and in particular, they will uh, give uh, benefits to groups that are positively socially constructed uh, and burdens uh, to groups that are negatively constructed. I sort of uh, use this logic as a starting point and I expand the framework to understand why groups focus on certain characters uh, in their narratives. So if a group wants to elicit sympathy, it will focus on positively constructed characters um, like children. And if a group wants to uh, elicit disgust it will focus on negatively constructed characters like criminals. Um, so this adds a little uh, extra element uh, to understanding why groups pursue particular narrative strategies. Um, and then finally, with critical race theory, this is really to understand how race plays into the debate. Um, the starting assumption is that racism is a persistent fact in American life. Um, and I think in the in this current moment, more and more people are coming to this realization. Uh, and while overt racism may no longer be socially acceptable, white supremacy is still very much present. So critical race theorists uncover the different frames that are used to convey and reinforce white supremacy, often in subtle or covert ways. For, uh, for example, the idea of abstract liberalism and the emphasis on individualism and equal opportunity, this notion that we get ahead by our own efforts, you know, this is a very commonly held view in the United States. Um, and then, you know, by implication, if you have failed to progress in the labor market or in the educational arena, um, then that must be some fault of your own. Um, and then the, another example would be the idea that we live in a colorblind society and we don't see people's race. We just see the other human beings. Um, that sort of implies that we are, you know, we've moved beyond racism when in fact we know that there are uh, many ways in which racism um, still uh, plays out and, and impacts people's lives. Um, so critical race theory helps to explain why groups rarely mention race. 
they're, they're unlikely to use explicitly racist language because that is socially unacceptable, but then they're also unlikely to uh, confront racism and to use anti-racist language. Um, and then the reason is that that could potentially uh, offend their largely white constituencies. Uh, and a lot of people would prefer to avoid confronting racial issues. And I think that's probably why uh, most of these groups have uh, avoided openly discussing this for so long. In the materials that you're reading, are the groups aware of the strategy of creating a narrative? Do they actively discuss, we should not say this, or we should use this word? Is that, is that part of what can be revealed from their communication? Yeah, I, I assume there is a, a great deal of intentionality in groups framing choices. Um, I have known people uh, who work within interest groups and do advocacy, and they are very aware um, of the power of framing. So uh, in a lot of cases, I think that they are making intentional choices about how to discuss the issue. Um, but there can be some other factors that are involved. So, for instance, the media has well-known biases, uh, and the media disproportionately emphasizes mass shootings uh, and white victims of violence. And so, part of the group, you know, so then interest groups may uh, simply sort of pick up and reinforce the the dominant framing that is happening in the media. Um, and there can be some, uh, uh, it, there may be some sort of unconscious processes also that are affecting how groups frame the issue um, that they potentially are, are not aware of. So the tendency to focus on, you know, white uh, child victims, for instance, may reflect sort of an unconscious process um, that uh, the groups are, are not explicitly sort of thinking about and, you know, making uh, decisions about at, in their framing, um, but then also um, you, these are these are strategic decisions that are made, um, but they are sort of day to day decisions, and they have sort of a cumulative effect over time. Um, and so that that so uh, while I don't think groups are intentionally misleading, they're just sort of telling a, a version of the truth at one point in time. The end result, which likely is unintended, is that we over time tend to have a, mis a broader uh, misperception of the issue. And that is just the result of these individual choices in framing that are made at particular points of time in particular media. Uh, you've been really a little bit too modest, so let me push you a little bit. You you apply these three frameworks, and uh, you're very careful to show where you're getting these ideas and how you're building on the work of others. But can can you outline a little bit more about about how what you're doing is really pushing beyond what's done before to to get to the sort of unique contribution of the work? Well, I don't know that uh, anyone else has um, examined such a large number of interest group communications um, from such a large population of groups. So there's a lot of work on the framing of gun policy. 
but most of it has focused on the media and uh, the research that has been done on interest groups has mainly focused on just a couple of organizations. So there are numerous studies that compare the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence to the National Rifle Association. So you really have a limited uh, number of groups that have been subject to previous analyses. Uh, And then there's there's amazing prior work on gun politics and policy. I I especially uh, love Kristen Goss's book, uh, Disarmed. Uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from from her work, um, and she did some interesting participant observation attending the Million Mom March uh, to really get a sense of what what's going on within the gun control movement. But she didn't do a large scale content analysis of interest group communications. Uh, and so this really is the first uh, study to examine such a large number of interest group communications in a diverse array of media, um, in particular, uh, social media and Facebook, um, this sort of a newer area of research. Uh, and then uh, there, there's lots of research looking at the issue of race and gun politics, but uh, nobody has so far systematically looked at, well, how do interest groups talk about race? Uh, race and uh, gun policy are so heavily intertwined, but uh, no one prior to this had really said, okay, are, are groups mentioning race? Are they dealing with this? Uh, and, and if so, how? Can you tell us just a little bit about how both sides are talking about race of what the study reveals? Sure. Uh, So this was really striking to me that it just was mentioned so infrequently. So for gun control groups, uh, they mentioned race in about 6% of their blog posts, emails, and press releases. And uh, on Facebook, they mentioned it in just 1.5% of their Facebook posts. Uh, Gun rights organizations mentioned race even less frequently. So in uh, about 4% of their non-Facebook communications and in less than 1% of their Facebook posts. So it's really hard to find instances of, of race coming up in these communications. So that to me is very striking. It, signif- it shows that they are Uh, not addressing one of the major facets of the issue, given that racial minorities are uh, really much more likely to be victims of gun violence um, than white people. Um, And so the fact they're not talking about this in these forums is significant. So, and I chose these forums because these are the forums that groups use to conduct public outreach. in, In press releases, they're trying to uh, shape broader public opinion in their emails to their supporters and their blog posts. They're really focusing on more of their core constituencies, but they're not educating people about the role of race in gun violence. Um, what I also did find with respect to race is that while explicit discussions of the role of race were rare, um, I found that groups did use uh, racial code words. So racial code words are codes are, are words that evoke race in sort of subtle ways. Um, so words like thug, 
uh, street criminal gang. Uh, and I also included uh, the, the phrase dangerous people in this because we have, there is sort of a, an implicit association between uh, racial minorities and crime. So I found racial code words to be actually much more common uh, in uh, some, somewhere around 35% of groups, uh, non-Facebook communications, uh, and in between 29 and 3.4% of their Facebook posts. And this is for both gun control and gun rights organizations. So while they don't explicitly talk about race, uh, racial code is sort of implicit, um, which is somewhat problematic. Um, just using the phrase, uh, keeping, let's keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, or let's, uh, let's get the guns out of the hands of bad guys, for instance. Um, these phrases don't explicitly discuss race, but because there is this association between race and crime, uh, that using this crime control frame uh, is is somewhat problematic because it does evoke race. Did did you find you, you one of the conclusions in the book is that both sides are using a strategy of conflict expansion, and I'm wondering. Uh, and you're saying that both sides also really are not attending to race. I'm wondering within the group of interest groups that you looked at on both sides, whether there were some variations. Are there some groups on either the gun safety or the gun rights side that do more uh, genuinely care about race? Uh, are there some that are less invested in conflict expansion and are looking for more compromise? Yeah, so there is uh, some significant important variation uh, among the groups that I studied. And so on the uh, on the gun control side, uh, there are groups that really make it their business to look at um, at the role of race. So the Violence Policy Center, which is a little bit more of a think tank, uh, they regularly uh, publish reports on black homicide victimization, and that is easily searchable on their website and they uh, issue press releases on a on a very regular basis about uh, that issue. Uh, and then some of the smaller groups uh, like Cure Violence and Gaze Against Guns, they're more uh, willing to discuss the role of race in gun violence. Uh, the mainstream gun control groups, a little bit less so. So you just don't see it uh, featured prominently uh, uh, in the communications of the Brady campaign, uh, of uh, Every Town for Gun Safety. Uh, in uh, uh, Americans for Responsible Solutions, which was renamed Giffords. You can find that information on their websites, but it's just not part of their e everyday messaging um, that they put out through these various uh, forums. Um, and so in, in a way, it is encouraging that some groups are more explicitly discussing race um, but they're smaller groups and they're more peripheral within the movement. And so there's a long way to go um, 
on the, the gun control side. And then um, there's definitely some variation within the gun rights uh, side of the issue, although I find that the rhetoric on the gun rights side is a little bit more consistent and cohesive um, than it is on the gun control side. Um, and some of the gun rights organizations uh, are more willing to um, use more extreme language. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll give an example uh, of a, from a press release from the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Um, so they stated uh, in reference to Illinois, Illinois already has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, yet drug gangs thrive in the Windy City and its suburbs and common street criminals don't have any trouble arming themselves. Um, so that's a very deliberate use of racial code in that particular example um, to portray the issue in a particular way. So um, the NRA, in contrast to uh, some of these groups, is probably actually considered more of the, the mainstream type of organization, and you won't see as much of this explicit uh, racial code in some of their communications. One of the things I loved about the book was the conclusion. So a lot of academics get to the end and they they summarize what they found, um, but they don't necessarily expand thoughtfully on the implications of their work. This book ends really differently. It, it almost has two conclusions in, in which you really seriously address the policy and political implications of the work that you've done and the um, and the trends that you've observed, I, one of the things that jumped out at me was uh, how you discussed the prospects for aligning with Black Lives Matter. Um, and I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about the advantages and obstacles to such an alignment, and also perhaps whether your analysis has changed since the book went to print, since our world has changed substantially since, since that time. Right. So I do talk about one way in which either side on this issue could build a more diverse movement. So I'll just start with the gun control side and whether there is any possibility of uh, aligning with Black Lives Matter. Um, so it, it could be a way to bring in and build a diverse movement. And there seems to be sort of a common goal of reducing violence. Um, and so what are the, you know, so that that's sort of the why it makes sense side of the argument. Uh, but there are some obstacles as well. Uh, for instance, there are some people prominent in the gun control movement who have advocated for racialized policing policies. So the founder of uh, the group that is now called Every Town for Gun Safety is former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who uh, advocated a policy called Stop and Frisk, uh, which in which the majority of people targeted were uh, Black or Latino. Uh, and then in addition, the gun control movement has also had a longstanding coalition with law enforcement dating to the 1970s. Um, in the 1980s, gun control groups came out against cop killer bullets, 
which are capable of piercing body armor. And in the 1990s, uh, the alliance with law enforcement was instrumental in helping pass the Brady Bill. Uh, and the Brady campaign represents police officers shot in the line of duty. Um, so, uh, to align with, uh, Black Lives Matter might mean making a, a difficult decision, reassessing that relationship with law enforcement because Black Lives Matter is about reducing, uh, you know, violence against, uh, minorities at the hands of the state. Um, so th- there would be some difficult choices and perhaps these groups would lose some people, but gain other supporters. But it's not just gun control groups who might think that this is uh, a possibility or something that they would want to do. So uh, gun rights organizations could could also seek to appeal to uh, to black gun owners uh, and people who feel threatened, um, especially by law enforcement. Um, what we are seeing now um, is that these is that gun control groups are actually starting to make some moves in this direction, which I find really interesting. Um, so I did check in with all of all of the groups in my book um, in terms of how they are responding to this current moment. And uh, some of the mainstream groups, these are the groups that uh, were most hesitant to, to mention race, are now coming out and saying that police violence is gun violence. So that's that's really uh, really interesting, and talking about uh, the how uh, white supremacy is sort of impacting uh, American life right now, and how we actually need to do something about it. We need to move away from mili- militarized policing. So the Brady campaign uh, has issued statements uh, to this effect, as has. Uh, every town for gun safety, and so the, and these are the the biggest and most mainstream gun control groups um, today. So I think that is really significant. It suggests that maybe groups are sort of moving in this direction. Um, I'm not seeing that on the gun rights side. So the NRA has been pretty much silent um, on uh, on on black gun rights um, and advocating for the rights of people who have been victimized by the state. Um, so uh, I think that this is a really interesting moment and we're seeing an evolution, uh, especially on the gun control side that I, that potentially will lead to a, a more diverse, uh, movement in the future. No, that's terrific. And, and, and this, this issue of police violence being gun violence, I think is, is something that has always been there. And you can see it as people are discussing this in the scholarly literature, but it hasn't had the kind of bright light shine on it that I think is is necessary. I also wonder if there are potential alliances to be made between the gun control people and Black Lives Matter with regard to Stand Your Ground, which disproportionately affects um, citizens of color who are are more likely to be shot and less likely to have self-defense upheld by a court. And that would be another possible um, uh, alliance that could be made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And these groups have been very critical uh, of of stand your ground laws. In fact, they prefer to use the terminology shoot first laws, uh, but recognizing that 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 could be an area in which uh, Black Lives Matter and gun control organizations work together, that there's, there's a lot of potential there. 
So there's so much in the conclusion and this book that I know we have not covered, but is there is there anything else that you want to leave listeners with before we talk about actually what what you're doing now? Um hey, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> um I think we've we've covered many of the the main the main ideas in the book. Okay. Well, well, tell me what you're doing now. What's the, what's, I know this book just came out in 2020, but what are you, have you started a new project? Are you thinking about a new project? Right. Um, after I finished this book, I did decide to step away from gun policy for the time being because it is, it's, it is emotionally draining. Um, it is a, just a difficult subject to study. Uh, it's depressing. There's, there's no getting around that. Um, so, uh, my current research is actually, uh, I moved to look at healthcare policy, uh, in particular, uh, the expansion of, um, Medicaid in the States, uh, after the Affordable Care Act. So, um, I'm sort of keeping the common thread, which is examining framing, uh, and looking at how people discuss uh, Medicaid and the people who are the beneficiaries of Medicaid. Um, and using a, a, the case study of Kentucky, um, which for uh, a couple of years, um, there was a proposal by the governor to roll back the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and there was a public comment period and thousands of people submitted public comments um, and what's, what me and my co-author, Kathy Colville, are doing, we are uh, looking at how people socially construct uh, beneficiaries, and especially the beneficiaries themselves. So while I focused on interest groups uh, quite heavily in my previous research, now the focus is sort of shifting in my uh, in our research here to uh, the targets, the the people who are going to be affected by public policies, and how they frame the issue and how they frame themselves as uh, as recipients. Um, and do they are they seeking to uh, shift or change the predominant social construction of people who? Uh, who receive Medicaid or receive public assistance in some way. So it's it's the, the same idea of framing and how framing can be used to shape public opinion, but looking at it from the perspective of the individuals who are impacted by public policy. Uh, well, that just sounds fascinating. And uh, I'll just note that you've moved from the emotionally draining and depressing study of the environment to the emotionally draining and depressing gun violence, and now on to hardly a cheery subject of yeah. um, health care. So <laughs> right. you, you certainly I, are picking the things that are um, are in the crosshairs of um, American uh, politics and policy. This is a terrific book. Uh, it is Warped Narratives, Distortion in the Framing of Gun Policy by Melissa K. Mary, available from the University of Michigan Press. You can find it on the University of Michigan Press website or online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. We're encouraging, I'm encouraging people personally to check out bookstore.org, bookshop. Dot .org which allows you to buy your book from a brick and mortar store and have it shipped directly to you 
trying to help out um, the brick and mortars during the pandemic. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for coming to share the book and best of luck with the next project. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this, this opportunity to talk about my research. 